Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for your word, which keeps us on the straight and narrow way, the way, the truth, and the life that is our Lord Jesus. Bless us today as we are concluding our study. We pray, Lord, that we would be ever found within your church and among those professing you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Each week we've had a quiz. This is not your final exam, but one last quiz for you. So we'll take just a moment here. Circle your your first knee-jerk reaction on this. Number one, orthodoxy means dry, joyless belief in God. True or false? False. Can't help yourself. Yep. Number two, the point of being orthodox is to look down on heretics. Number three, the Trinity can already be glimpsed in the Old Testament. Number four, the problem with heresy is often that it's too reasonable. And number five, all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. True or false? That's a strange question to have on a quiz. <laughs> we'll come back to it. All right. I'm circling one of the <laughs> Yeah, right. The aim of orthodoxy. The aim of orthodoxy is joyful communion with the triune God. That's the goal. That's the the final purpose of our professing and confessing the Christian faith. It's not simply having the right answers, not being a heretic. These are good things. (laughs) But fundamentally, ultimately, the point, the goal of being a Trinitarian Orthodox Christian is to live in the joyful communion relationship with God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what it's all pointing toward and driving toward. To look at just one text, go to 1 John chapter 1. So not the Gospel of John, but John's first letter. First John chapter 1, John starts his, his letter this way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Get this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship koinonia, communion with us. And indeed, our koinonia, our communion, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our, what? Joy Joy may be complete. John tells us that the upshot of the gospel proclamation is ultimately koinonia, communion, fellowship, that rich biblical word for the relationship that humans had with God in the beginning, in, go- in the garden, as God came and dwelt among Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden, but that he has desired to restore with us through his son Jesus, who came into the world as Emmanuel, God with us, sent his spirit so that he would live inside of us until finally he will come again, and when he does, behold, he will make all things new, wiping every tear away from our eyes. In the meantime, his desire is for that joyful relationship with him. And we could have also pointed to our Dwell Richly reading for tomorrow in John 15, when Jesus says, 
I've spoken these words to you so that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be made full. Ultimately, that's the goal. That's our aspiration as believing Orthodox Trinitarian Christians, that as we confess Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and live in relationship with him, we grow in joy. And that's also our goal then in proclaiming it to others, sharing the word with others. And this is where I like to use the analogy of the uh, t-shirt cannon guy at a ball game. You guys, everybody knows and loves the t-shirt cannon guy. And I gotta say, doing a quick Google search for this, this is one of the more tame ones. There are some serious t-shirt cannons out there. Like where it'll be like a six barrel cannon. <laughs> but you know, I was at the Tigers game uh, toward the end of the season, end of the summer, and the, you know, it was the Tigers. It was pretty sad. But then outcome t-shirt cannon guy on top of the dugout, and suddenly the whole crowd is just crazy excited. Everybody's up on their face. Woo! I want that extra, extra, extra large white t-shirt that I'm going to throw away as soon as I get home. So bad. Everybody loves t-shirt cannon guy. <clears throat> this is the analogy I like to use for what we as Christians, when we think about what it is to share God's heart with our neighbors, I think too often we think of it as you know, you've got to be a salesman, you've got to, that this is something you've just got to guilt and pressure people. The reality is, like, like uh, John said in that letter, is we're like the t-shirt cannon guy. We just want there to be more joy in the world. A joy that is found in that communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we enjoy. We want to share it with others. The kids sing this song every VBS. They often sing it over at camp, and maybe some of you know it. Joy, joy. You guys know that one? Well, let me, let me teach it to you. You guys at the middle table, I know you know it. J is for Jesus. O is for others. And Y, 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 Y. It's for you and you and you and you and you. That's it, right? We have that joy of the Lord that he wants to share with others and that he uses you also to be that instrument and conduit of spreading that joy. That's the upshot of the whole thing. So if you get nothing else out of this whole study of heresies and all the ways that Christian faith can and has go wrong, I hope you hear this that the ultimate aim of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is for you to live in joyful relationship with him. That's what we're after. That's, that's what it's all about. Amen to that? Amen. I want to take just a moment before we get into our top eight final takeaways from the study uh, to reflect on a painting. I may have used it before in a sermon. I, I can't recall, or perhaps in an inklings. But it's a famous icon of the Trinity, from a medieval Russian artist named Andrei Rublev. Any of you ever seen this before? Some of you have. Um, turn to Genesis chapter 18, because on the surface of it, this is a icon depicting this scene from uh, the book of Genesis, in which there are these mysterious strangers who come to visit Abraham. All right, we're not going to read the whole story, but let me just give you the first, first piece of it. Genesis chapter 18. And notice, notice some uh, clues along the way that there's more than meets the eye going on here. Okay, that this isn't just three strangers, three visitors, but there, there's more going on. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, meaning Abraham, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. 
he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. I'm sure that went over well. <laughs> Go on, Sarah. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. All right, we'll stop there. But um, it becomes clear, if it isn't already, that there's these uh, visitors are not just any strangers. Are they angels? As the book of Hebrews um, suggests, some have entertained angels unawares. Or is this even in some kind of pre-incarnate form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Well, that seems not as likely to me. However, through the Christian tradition, through the, through the history of the church, that, that story has been often used to point forward to the Trinity in a spiritual or uh, figural sort of way. And in that spirit, then, the artist Andrei Rublev depicts the Trinity using that story. I want to just draw your attention to a couple of details about it. So you have the three figures, and you notice that uh, Rublev makes them all of similar proportions, and they all look very much alike, conveying and bringing together that sense that the Trinity is, while there's distinct persons, they're equal, okay? co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The clothing is really significant and important. So on the left, we have the depiction of God the Father in this, where he has this shimmering, almost transcendent garb. And one thing to notice too, we pointed out before, but both the Spirit and uh, Jesus, Jesus would be the character in the middle, the Spirit over there, are looking to the Father. So especially reflecting Eastern theology, that both the Spirit and uh, Jesus are, uh, proceed from the Father. So you've got... Uh, the Father there on the left. Then on the right, you have the depiction of the Spirit with that iridescent blue and green. He is the Lord and giver of life. And then in the middle, the depiction of, of Jesus himself. And you notice the two natures are captured with those colors. You have the, the heavenly blue, the celestial blue, but also the clay color of earth and, of course, also brings to mind blood. Now, uh, one neat thing, this is a, a side note, but Dave will appreciate this. I was reflecting on this later, Dave. So we we're working out this week the colors for the sanctuary. I don't know. Part of it wants, to be, wants it to be a surprise, but I think that probably wouldn't be good if it was just totally a surprise. But um, suffice it to say that uh, this, the sky blue is going to figure prominently into the, the coloring of, of the church. As this, the ceiling is going to be, the vault of the ceiling is going to be restored to originally having that sky blue evoking heaven, as well as uh, behind the altar. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. But then on the back wall, there's going to be a color, uh, not quite this dark perhaps, but similar to that kind of clay color. And this picks up on colors of the, um, the pipe organ. If you look at the pipe organ, you know, it's painted beautifully. And so the colors that uh, have been selected will pick up on that. And so there's going to be this sense that as we are worshiping and uh, seeing the presence of the Lord in our midst, our eyes will be drawn up in that kind of heavenly presence with the blue. 
But then as you're going out back into the world, see also that, that clay color, that reminder of our vocation in the world and the presence of Christ who goes and is with us in both those places, in heaven and on earth. It's going to be really cool. So, Dave, I know you like a good theological interpretation of your paint colors. So that's what we're looking forward to. And then you have the, the fatted sacrifice, which is pointing forward to the sacrifice of, of Christ and then ultimately to the Eucharist. And it's kind of hard to see, but you may notice their fingers are each in a position of blessing. And this is part of Rublev's way of pushing back against the idea that, oh, Jesus is getting punished and he, he can't believe what's happened to him. People will say this nowadays, it's a very postmodern kind of interpretation of the atonement, that oh, this is divine child abuse, that kind of phrase gets used. I mean, crazy things from my perspective. But in any case, Rublev already is showing um, artistically why that's not the case. Because as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each blessing the sacrifice, it's showing that there's a kind of divine conspiracy here, right? That all three persons of the Trinity are in on the work of redemption. They are of one accord. When the Father says, you know, I, who will I send and who will go for us? And the Son raises his hand and says, here am I, send me. And the Spirit says, I will support you. I will um, enable you to do this great mission. One last thing about the painting, which gets at the, the point again, of being Orthodox, being Trinitarian, is the perspective that the artist uses. So we're looking out on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but as we do, we're encircled around the table. And so to speak, the fourth spot is left open. And what he's kind of saying is that now, as, they each, as each of the persons of the Trinity are looking at one another, they're also just the, the vantage point of kind of looking out toward us too, as if to say, come and join the feast. Come and live in this relationship, this communion in koinonia with me. That's my goal. That's my delight. This is part of why the Eucharist is kind of the high point of our worship service, the opportunity when we have this distinct, um, special communion and fellowship with God Almighty. But that relationship continues then out in our everyday life, as we suggest in the sermon today as well. So I love this painting, I love this icon, and I think it just powerfully depicts what is the goal of all of our faith, that joyful communion with God. Any reflections or questions about the icon or things that especially stand out to you about it? Wow, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there, right? And there's more, too. There's, you've got the tree back there. I mean, he's bringing in other biblical narratives, too. I was not like an art major or anything. I just love good art, beautiful art, sacred art, and the way that it's able to connect and convey truth to us in ways that just words can't, and differently, right? Any other thoughts or questions? Yeah, Tom. Is that like a thin uh, staff that they're all Yeah, so the, and they each have kind of a staff, too. It's, just, it's very narrow and, and hard to see, which could be evocative of um, a couple of things, probably most significantly the reign and rule of God, and so this is kind of a, a sign of their kingship, and, having the sense also, again, to the literal story, they're sojourners, they're travelers, and so they've got kind of their walking stick. But that walking stick has a, a deeper meaning to it as well, I think. So, did you have another one? Follow up? Yes, right. Right, yeah, that's a good point. Good, okay. Well, then let's get into some of our takeaways from the study as a whole. How not to be a heretic. So I like to do it in family feud style, okay? We've surveyed 100 people and asked them how not to be... No. Although I did put numbers on here. 
And it's just like they used to say, what was the TV show where they'd always say, we're keeping score, but the score doesn't mean anything. Um, who, whose line is it anyway? So there's, there's numbers on here, but you can disregard them. How not to be a heretic. Counting down from eight to one, not necessarily in order of importance, except perhaps for the first one. But first thing that I think we've learned and seen throughout this study, read the Old Testament. Read the Old Testament. With a, new, a number of the heresies, this is where they really get into trouble. Not so much with their reading of the New Testament, although there was plenty of that too, but in the fact that they either neglected or just out and out got rid of the Old Testament. The God who reveals himself in the Old Testament scriptures is also the God who reveals himself in the New Testament. He has commandment in both New and Old Testament. He has grace in both Old and New Testament. And in particular, when we read the Old Testament with a, a Christ-centered spiritual lens, we're able to see in those stories like Genesis 18 that there's always more going on, that there's these anticipations and foreshadowings. I love the title of this great big fat book we have to read in seminary. I hope, Matt, they make you read it too. <laughs> By an Old Testament scholar named Horace Hummel. And the title of the book is kind of an overview of the whole Old Testament. The title of it is The Word Becoming Flesh. The Word Becoming Flesh. And his point is that already in the Old Testament, we're anticipating and looking forward to the coming of Christ. And for those who have eyes to see, it's present throughout the scriptures, throughout Old Testament, New Testament. And so that's the, the first thing I would say to you. You don't want to be a heretic? Don't just read the New Testament. Of course, read that. But also the Old Testament. Make that a part of your daily diet in the Word as well. But how about for you? Is the Old Testament, I mean, are you intimidated by it? Or are you um, enriched by it? What has been your experience? Or have you just been so scared off that you never really have opened up the, the Old Testament? What's your impression or what's your experience? Yeah, Judy. Sunday school, we're starting from Genesis. Yeah. Yep. It does. It, you, you find new things through their eyes and reading the scripture to them and answering their questions. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sunday school is a great job of getting into the Old Testament. And when you're teaching, even more so, you're able to re engage it too. Yeah. Other thoughts on the OT? Yeah, Hester? I think it, it um, is a beautiful picture of how God deals with his people. Yeah. Not, not, I mean, he's. Slow to anger. Yes, and abounding in steadfast love. That's right. And, and you know, you, you look at the children of Israel, and here they go again, right. complaining. And, yep, and, but God and is faithful. Kind of like hit them over the head with a <laughs> two by four. People, don't you remember? Right, right, they're forgetful. And all throughout the Old Testament, yep. he never goes back on his word. Yes. The most common descriptor of God is this wonderful Hebrew word chesed. You hear you say chesed. Yeah, it's got your good chesed in there, your chesed. Chesed is, uh, in the ESV translation, usually it's translated as steadfast love. King James, I think, said loving kindness, something like that. Um, but it, it, it's his loyal, unfailing covenant love. It's his love, the love of a God who keeps his promises. Who is faithful? His faithful love, perhaps, um, gets at it. And that's the most common descriptor of who God is. And you see that throughout the Old Testament. Yeah, Sandy? Um, it seems that um, if you don't fully understand the Old Covenant, then the New Covenant yeah. is not fully understood. Yes. And you go from 
sure. Yeah. That continue. Okay, good. Gospel. It doesn't make as much sense. Is it possible just to read the New Testament, hear the gospel bare bones, and for God to create faith? Yes, of course, for it to resonate. But Sandy's absolutely right. With, apart from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, you can't fully appreciate and grasp what's new, what's good news about the New Covenant. Yeah, go ahead. That's true. Yes, yep. It's it's easy to misapply it. And you used a couple of words that I just want to, you know, uh, tease out. And you said about the hyperlegalism or the antinomianism. So on the one hand, it's easy to just if you just focus on the Old Testament to become very legalistic and just think it's all about all I need to do is just keep these rules. Whereas on the other hand, if you divorce Old and New Testament. I think it's easy to fall into, to use the, the good theological word, antinomian. It literally means anti-law. We think, oh, now it doesn't matter what I do. I can live however I want, and God's going to forgive me. In holding together Old and New Testament, law and gospel, we're able to see it's both. And that's where the, the tension of faith lives. So a couple other hands. Yeah, Chip. I think, you know, when you read the Old Testament, it's so much about the Israelites and about mm -hmm. the forming of this nation and these people. And that can be hard to read at times. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like, how many other ites is he going to just smite the ites? Right. And it's very much about forming of this of these people, you know, and um, and they can get uh, like boring, right? And you read some of the, the chronicles and you read it in a different way. Yeah. This king did this. This king did this. You're like, I don't really care anymore. Well, who did what? You know. Right. You all sound like horrible people. You know? <laughs> um, and then when you but when you when you when you read the New Testament and of course then the New Covenant is is an expansion of, of who's included. It, it really puts into relief because like the Old Testament is like twice as long as the New Testament. <laughs> they spent a lot of time focusing on just one people. Right. And now it's like, oh, guess what, guys? It's for everyone. Yeah. And they, the Jews, as we're reading John, like, uses the Jews almost like in a derogatory term. Yeah, he does. All of a sudden, they're like the favorite people. It's like, now the Jews all screwed it up. Well, right. You know, the, you know, the Gentiles, but, you know, it, it just, but if you don't read the Old Testament, you don't really understand that dynamic. Yeah, that exactly. The yeah, that's true. Tom, did I see your hand? There's a, there's a great uh, unity that comes about. Yes. We share a common story. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And hearing and knowing that narrative as it flows through is so powerful. I'll come back to you, Sandy, then Hans, and then Jim, are you raising your hand too? Yeah, go ahead, Hans. Uh, I like the Old Testament for all the stories, all of the stuff that Chip hates. Uh, <laughs> you love smiting the heights, all I of those. Yes. Um, but I, I like even the Old Testament for like reading uh, J.R. Tolkien's books. Oh, cool. Let's say, let's skip the first two books and just read the Return of the King. <laughs> and why doesn't this make any sense? You need the whole trilogy. Right. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Jim? Well, I just would suggest that my, my two favorites are the Psalms of David uh, for comfort. For sure. And yep. And then also the prophecies of Isaiah. Yes. That come to full fruition yep. as designed way back then yep. and right materialized before the people's eyes. Yes. I, I would agree with you on both of those. Sandy, you, oh, I'm sorry. Just, just God's faithfulness in yeah. conserving the Jewish people in order that the seed would yes. through all of that. It's like there's this precious cargo yeah. through generation to generation. And every story that's you know, in the Old Testament is a 
Yeah. yeah. Removing the remnant, you know, right. Continually yes. Oh. And that's why that's why Matthew's the beginning of Matthew's gospel is so profound and significant. Although as modern people we miss it. He starts with all these names. All they're like, who cares? Get to the action. But it's precisely a testament to God's faithfulness through the ages. Lily and then Linda. Yeah, I mean, just getting that background is yeah. so vital. Yeah, Linda. I was just going to say, when I, I was listening to the Old Testament and the um, person reading read every single name. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, they went through every single name and I, it hit me, wow, these were real people. Yes. <laughs> you know, because if I read it, I yeah. just skip the names. Sure, right. <laughs> don't read every single name. But this, you know, he read every name and I thought those were yeah, you got to wonder if you're, if you're tempted a little bit, if you're the person reading that, like, yeah, nobody's going to listen to this. I'm just, no, yada, yada, yada. Uh, there's a lot of them. Yeah. So, good. This is num- number one, how not to be a heretic. Read the Old Testament. And second, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the creeds. The creeds are such a gift and such a blessing. The Apostles' Creed sprang up very organically within the first century or two of Jesus' ascension as what was called the rule of faith, the regular fide. And it's just in a nutshell sort of way, encompasses the whole story of the Bible. Of course, it leaves a lot out. A lot of the Old Testament gets left out. But we get a, a picture of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even how it is in that Trinitarian form is so valuable. Uh, now, what about the Athanasian Creed? I think you should all memorize it. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But the Apostles' Creed? You can and should memorize it. Make a confirmation kids do it. It's, it's not that hard. Have, of course, you get familiar with the rhythm of it too. And uh, it's a powerful way for us, not, not only not to be a heretic, but to continue to keep that story of the gospel before our heart and mind all the time. Third one, <clears throat> pray with the church. Pray with the church. Four. And for the church too. No. What? Number four? One, oh, four people said that. No, this is... <clears throat> This is the number of people that answered this when I took the survey of 100 oh, people, Joanne. <laughs> this is extremely confusing. I, Just, <laughs> I almost blurted out the answer. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Just disregard the number. Um, praying, praying with the church. What I mean by that is, you know, praying is kind of a shorthand for worshiping, but you know, as the, the church as a whole through the ages... We've seen this with several of the heresies, that they were rebutted precisely by the way that Christians were already worshiping, where they would double back. Easy example of that would be Pelagianism. We talked about how Pelagianism was that heresy that said, people don't really have original sin. Everybody's born in the world as a clean slate. They're doing fine. Sin might come into it later, but naturally you're good. And the church had already for hundreds of years been baptizing babies, been baptizing newborns. And Augustine was able to point to the worship life of the church to Pelagius and say, why are we baptizing newborns if they're already good? They don't need uh, the, the forgiving waters of holy baptism. He was able to use the worship life of the church to counteract. The church w- had intuited in its worship life the truths that it only later distilled and codified. Does that make sense? It was like within that, the collective spirit living within the people of God. It was, he, you know, Jesus says this, the spirit is going to lead you in right paths, Okay. He was doing that, and then, you know, as things progressed and matured, Christians were like, you know, we should probably spell this out, right? 
And so they did. Similarly with the canon. We talked about this, I think, last week. Of the, you know, which books are included in the Bible. Well, they already knew which books they had been using, preaching from, worshiping with, hearing in their worship. They're like, those are the ones that we should include. It was just natural. So worshiping with the church, being part of, of the, the church year, going along with it, and the rhythms, and the way that our lectionary, that ordered series of readings, gives us and keeps us, uh, keeps before us the whole story of the Bible is so vital and so important. So, I mean, with, with this, as with many of them, I'm preaching to the converted, I know, as well as to the choir, got choir members here. Uh, <laughs> but it's good to, good to reinforce it. All right, another one. Embrace mystery. I know this sounds a little woo-woo, okay? But we have seen how important it really is and that where uh, many heretics do fall off is that they are way too reasonable. Their faith makes a lot of sense. Guess what? A lot of our faith doesn't make human sense. Case in point, like I said with the, the kids, my annual math lesson with the kids in the catechism lesson. One plus one equals one. Like, oh gosh, pastor, so dumb. Um, but this is the, the mystery of God's math, the way that he has revealed himself to us. How can he be at once God and man? It blows our mind, right? That the, the finite would be capable of possessing the infinite. All creation, all the cosmos can't hold God. And yet he's able to locate himself in one small baby need to embrace mystery. That doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can't know. Of course there are. But we also need to be open to the thing, to accept that there are things we can't know. And you know, in the sermon this morning, I talked about God's will, and I kind of opened it by saying God's will seems like one of those inscrutable things that's hidden behind the veil. And perhaps I should have qualified it a little bit to say, yeah, there are parts of, it, of God's will that are that way. There are things, there are questions that we have in this life that we can't answer. And we do wonder, God, why did this happen? He doesn't give us the answer to every last little question. And there is part of God's will that is mysterious. He's given us to know what we need to know, what his heart is toward us in his son. But things that we don't know, need to, need to know, at least in this life, he's withheld from us. That's okay. So embracing that mystery keeps us in the path of orthodoxy. Oops. Next one, as you see, the numbers are just random numbers here, uh, is see the forest and the trees, okay? See not only the individual stories and doctrines and verses, but the big picture of what God is doing. And this goes back again to the importance of having the creed, because the, the creed gives you that big picture story that then we're able to test any, any particular um, doctrine or teaching or idea, interpretation against God's larger purposes. And we said in the first study, I think, I gave the analogy of like a baseball field, that there are areas in which there's fair and foul. There's a lot of the heresy we saw, those are things that are foul, right? They're outside the bounds of Christian belief. But we also said that within what's the fair, it continues infinitely, right? It doesn't stop at 350 feet or wherever the fences are. Fair, fair goes on and on and on. And so also when it comes to our faith of seeing God's truth and how it's revealed, it's not a constricting thing. It's a freeing thing, recognizing the larger picture and purposes of God. All right, now we're counting down to the final three. Number three, 12 people said this in my imagination. <clears throat> Keep the tension. 
And this kind of goes hand in hand with the embracing the mystery, but we talked a lot about paradoxes throughout the course of this study and how God is a God of paradox. Is it free will or is it divine election? Yes. Are we saints or are we sinners? Yes. Is Jesus fully God? Yes. So paradox is when we hold up as true two things. We don't kind of balance it out. It's not a teeter-totter where we sort of do a little of this and a little of that. It's both of them full bore. Once again, many times it doesn't make sense. Heresy takes the, the hard edges off of this stuff. It says, let's come up with a little bit of a more reasonable faith. Like, Jesus, is he really God? Doesn't it make more sense that he's just kind of like the best creature? Yeah, that makes more sense. The Trinity does not make sense. Nobody set out uh, like, oh, you know what makes sense? How about a, a Trinitarian God? A God who's three, uh, three in one. What are you talking about? But this is how God has revealed himself. Upholding that paradox is really key. Last two, and this one's going to sound, well, like a plug, which it kind of is, but also repeating. But dwelling richly in the word of God is so, so vital. Growing deeper, continually plumbing the depths of his word. For those of you seasoned saints here who have been reading the Bible for a long time, have you ever felt like, you know, I think I've got it. I got the gist of it. I, I, there's nothing new for me here. You ever felt that way? No. no. There's kind of like this running joke or meme on the internet nowadays that you're going to come to the end of Netflix one day. You know, you just streamed everything and you're like, ah, oh, they just say, sorry, we've, there's, there's nothing left. Um, if you can't come to the end of Netflix... <laughs> How much more is it the case that you are never going to come to the end, to the endless depths of God's word and his truth? Keep going deeper. I love the the summons that Jesus gives to Peter when he says to him, put down your nets out in the deep, out into the depths. I think that there is both a literal and a spiritual meaning to that. The literal meaning like, Peter, listen to me here. You're going to get some fish. But spiritually speaking, that the summons, the call of God is for you and me not to be content to splash around in the shallows, but to keep going deeper, learning more about who he is, what his character is, the the implications, the ramifications of the gospel in our lives. It just keeps going. But it all flows out of that dwelling richly in his word, abiding in his word, and letting it form and shape us all the while. Then finally, tying it all together, Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. This is a very Lutheran thing of me to say here, but where our guy Marty Luther would would always bring us back to is cling to Christ. Cling to the the revealed God, the God who has made himself known in his son as the the son of God, the son of man. And even that word Christ encapsulates the Trinity in a nutshell. Where's my, my whiteboard is, oh, it's over there. That's okay. But Christ, Christ means the anointed one. So you have the anointer, the one who does the anointing, God the Father. You have the anointed one, the one who is anointed, God the Son. And then you have the anointing itself of God the Spirit. In that word Christ, you have the Trinity all encapsulated in one word. Cling to Christ. Cling to God as he has revealed himself in his Son through his Holy Spirit. When we do that, when we live by that ferocious Faith in the Savior, holding fast to him as he is the vine and we are the branches. You'll never fall. He holds fast to you. 
So I hope that throughout this study, as we've learned about the different heresies and, yes, gone down some rabbit trails and hopefully uh, you know, enriched some of your historical knowledge as well, that ultimately, ultimately, I hope that it's pointed you back to Christ, to cling to him more fiercely and to find in that relationship with the Christ, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that joyful communion we have in fellowship with him. Thank you guys for being a part of this. Next week, we'll take a week off of of Bible study, okay? So no Bible study next week. There's worship, but no Bible study. And uh, we'll pick up again in the new year. So look forward to that. Thank you guys. See you then.